and turn to Romans chapter 3. We're going to get there in just a few minutes. But let's go back and review a little bit of what we've been talking about the last, well, really the last couple months. But this series that we're doing, and actually this will kind of update everybody. Uh, it's good to have uh, Jared Dirks, and uh, they're from Mount Zion Baptist Church up in Brogue, Pennsylvania. And uh, they, do a, they do a trip every year for their uh, juniors and seniors, you said, right? So uh, they're, they're on that trip and, and decided to come by here tonight, so we're glad that they're here. Um, but we are, we are talking and have been talking about wolves in sheep's clothing. And of course, the last, I don't know, six, seven weeks, we've been on Catholicism and just taken one, uh, one false doctrine of Catholicism at a time. And last week, we started talking about the ordinances. What are the ordinances in a Baptist church? Jackson? Baptism. And what's another one, Alex? The Lord's Supper. All right. Let's see if you can remember what we talked about last week that we said were the ordinances. How many ordinances are there in the Catholic church? Johan? Seven. Very good. And what are they? Do you remember? We talked about what last week? Nah. Baptism. All right, that's the first one. And obviously, that's the one that, of course, that they say. And actually, here we go. We've got the next one. All right, next. Very good. The Catholic Church performs infant baptism. And of course, uh, that's, that is, uh, I mean, anybody obviously coming in can, can get baptized. But uh, for them, infant baptism has a whole lot to do with it because. Uh, uh, you get baptized as an infant, and you're, sec- you're secure, you're sealed for, for basically all of eternity. And of course, we talked about a lot of different reasons last week why, that's, uh, why, why baptism is not necessary for salvation. Uh, what was the second one that we said? What comes after baptism? Do you remember? I know I'm testing your memory from a whole week ago. Baptism? Uh, no, not yet. That, that's the one we ended with. Confirmation. The one looking at all the notes back there. Very good. But that's, that's given af- after baptism, usually it's given in adolescence, but that is uh, laying on of hands, anointing by the priest, and it's supposed to increase and deepen baptismal grace. That's what the point of confirmation is. We talked a lot about that last week. Then the third one uh, we said was the priesthood, which is the holy orders, and we, talked, uh, we spent a whole week on that, and so we, we kind of moved over that one pretty quickly. And the one Jackson was trying to remember is... The Eucharist, which is the Mass. Very good. And we spent a lot of time, most of our time last week, talking about reasons why we reject the Mass. And so that brings us today, then, to the fifth, um, what is it? Sacrament. Why couldn't I think of the word? Fifth sacrament is penance. And that is one that we're going to spend a little bit of time on. The last two we're not going to spend that much time on tonight, uh, but we will finish out with, with sacrament. So penance Uh, And we have the definition up there, is the act of confessing one's sin to a priest and doing good deeds and performing various rituals. Uh, Rituals like repeating the rosary, rituals like, uh, you know, praying to Mary and all of that kind of stuff according to the instruction of the priest in order to make restitution for the sin. And and penance is actually called auricular confession. uh, confession. And auricular means in the ear. So this, this is a confession where you're not just praying in your heart or something like that. You are making a confession to the priest. And I, I don't know if you've ever been in a Catholic church. I, I was able to, uh, I've, I've been in Catholic churches for, for funerals and stuff like that. But I was actually, when I was in Mexico, uh, able to visit a Catholic church. And you can see just all the booths lined up. And, and you can go in there and sit down. And that's where you make your confession to the priest. And, 
And there's some pretty interesting things that go into that as far as uh, uh, just so, so unbiblical. And a lot of these different things we talked about, we'll get into these tonight. But let me read you a couple quotes, uh, specifically from Catholic writings, uh, just to show you that this is not something that we're saying about the Catholic Church. This is what they say about themselves, and, and specifically about penance. Man goes to confession a sinner. If he goes sincerely and trustfully, he returns a new man, brought back to life, filled with strength. I don't know, I don't know if you need, if you've, you probably interact with Catholic people on a decent, uh, on, a, on a maybe not a daily basis, but pretty often. And uh, you know, a lot of times you'll hear them say, "Oh, I need to go to confession after this." You know, getting ready to do something they know they shouldn't do, or they've just done something or said something they know they shouldn't do, and they say, "Oh, I need to go to confession." Well, the reason why is they've been trained and taught and programmed to believe that if you just go sit down and make this confession to a person that those sins can be forgiven, and then you walk out of there a new man as if you just met Jesus. I mean, essentially, it's exactly uh, the way that they uh, perceive penance and, of course, the confession. Here's something else they say. If someone confesses his sins to, to a Roman Catholic priest, even if they're as black as hell with honesty of soul, humility and repentance, and if he is really ready to live as befits a friend of Christ, he can have no doubts. The sacrament of penance really assures him of forgiveness and reconciliation to God. If one has forgotten a serious sin or has not confessed it, being confused at the times of one's confession, that confession is nevertheless valid, and the absolution given has set the penitent free from all his sins. Now, that's if you've forgotten. If you, per if you know about it and you did not confess it, then essentially you don't get forgiveness for that sin, and you deal with all the repercussions of that, which we'll talk about in a little bit. Here's one last quote. After a good confession, this comes from a book called Any Questions, and I've quoted this as we've, as we've uh, gone through the series. But after a good confession, I know for sure that my sins have been forgiven through the merits of the blood of Jesus Christ, merits which the church applies to my soul. Now, penance involves four elements. I've got them listed here so you can see them. Sincere contrition, confession to a priest, and by the way, it has to be to an actual priest uh, in order for it to be valid, you cannot just go make a confession to your brother or to your, fa your family or, or to a friend or something like that. It has to be made to a priest, and we'll talk about why in just a little bit. The third element is absolution by the priest. In other words, that priest can forgive those sins. And then the fourth one is the act of penance or satisfaction, which the act of penance, now obviously all of this thing kind of fits under the same umbrella, but the act of penance is what can I do to atone for those sins? Sometimes it's paying money. Sometimes, and I'm telling you, I've seen, I've seen a lot of these different things, uh, especially uh, one of the places that I went in Mexico was one of the main basilicas, which is one of their huge um, Catholic churches in Mexico City. And they had a giant courtyard. And I'm saying the courtyard was probably as big as almost our whole property here, uh, all paved in stone and everything else. And there's people walking around on their knees bloody knees. They're, they're, they're doing their penance. They're paying for their sin. There were people that were walking around, and, you know, it's not quite the same as, you know, taking a cat of nine tails and whipping yourself, but people whipping themselves uh, with, you know, leather straps as a way to, to pay for their sins. That's what a priest has told them that they needed to do as their act of penance, and uh, it, it just goes on and on from there, but um, here's another one that comes from the Catholic Catechism. catechism. Penance is a sacrament in which the sins committed after baptism are forgiven by means of the absolution of a priest. The priest gives a penance after confession that we may satisfy God for the temporal punishment due to our sins. 
So the priest comes up with whatever he deems necessary for the level of that sin. We'll talk about that in a little bit as well. We're going to spend some more time on that uh, in a different week. But there are levels of sin within the Catholic Church. And depending on, if, you know, depending on how egregious this sin is or how grievous this sin is, you have uh, higher levels of penance that you have to do to actually pay for that sin. And so uh, that is completely up to the, the Catholic priest. Now, how do penance and repentance differ. And I can only imagine, uh, you know, Martin Luther, when he was, uh, I, I can imagine how shocked he must have been when he actually read the Bible in Greek for the first time. You know, they were not allowed to read the, the Bible in their language. It was all in the language that, that the common person didn't understand. Uh, the common person didn't know how to read in Latin and so on. But he discovered that Jesus didn't say, do penance. Jesus said, repent. And that was it's two totally different things, so obviously two completely different ideas. The one is my yielding myself in humble belief to what Jesus Christ did. Obviously, that's what repentance is. Penance is me offering him my actions as a payment for my sin. And that could be so many different things when it comes to Hail Marys or, or Our Fathers or fastings or pilgrimages or uh, physical punishment of myself like we already talked about. But the list just goes on and on and on with all the different things that I am trying to do to pay for my sins. And obviously, we can never do enough to pay for our sins. And, and, and I wish, uh, and this is, this is what our responsibility is, but I wish that we were just able to tell people, hey, the Bible says you don't have to do it on your own. Jesus Christ already did the penance for us. He already took care of the payment for that sin. We don't have to go do it on our own. Now, this comes from uh, a, a guy named, uh, his name is Pastor C.D. Cole. He died in I believe 1968, he's the pastor of, of a church called Jarvis Street Baptist Church in Toronto. It's one of the oldest Baptist churches in the city. He didn't start, but, but uh, started way back in the early 1800s, and, and he pastored there for quite a while. Anyway, he said this, The basic and fatal error of Romanism is the denial of the sufficiency of Christ as Savior. It denies the efficacy of his sacrifice on the cross. Romanism has a Christ but he's not sufficient as a savior. What he did on Calvary must be repeated in the mass, remember we talked about last week, and supplemented through works of penance. And this makes priestcraft and sacramentarianism necessary. Romanism is a complicated system of salvation by works. It has salvation to sell, but not on Isaiah's terms, without money and without price. It offers salvation on the installment plan and then sees to it that the poor sinner is always behind in his payments so that when he dies, there is a large balance unpaid, and he must continue payments by sufferings in purgatory or until the debt is paid by prayers, alms, and sufferings of his living relatives and friends. The whole system and plan calls for merit and money, from the cradle to the grave and even beyond. Surely the wisdom that drew such a plan of salvation is not from above, but is earthly and sensual. And boy, I think that's a tremendous um, uh, summary of exactly what Catholicism is all about. It, I mean, and when it comes down to it, at the very end of the day, it's all about money. Because you have to pay money to get your sins forgiven. You have to pay money to get your relatives out of purgatory. You have to pay money to light candles to help, pay, to, to help get these people out of purgatory. You have to pay money to do this and do that and do this and do that. And, and it all comes down to the fact that Jesus Christ is not enough. What Jesus Christ did on the cross was not enough. We have to continue that. And that's, that's what he's talking about when you're saying Jesus has to be continually sacrificed. Remember we talked about that last week, transubstantiation, the idea that the, the bread and the wine become the body and the blood of Jesus Christ. And when that happens, Jesus Christ is being sacrificed all over again for us. 
And then the penance, where you're constantly and continually paying for your sin. Uh, but I think, I think this statement in that, in, that, um, uh, in that quote is so well put. Romanism has a Christ, but he's not sufficient as a Savior. Well, what about, what about Roman Catholicism? They believe that Jesus died on the cross. They believe that he rose again. They believe that he went back to heaven. They believe all the same things that we believe. Yes, they, they do believe in a Christ, but the way they believe, he's not sufficient as a Savior to bring salvation and to keep us saved. And so for the rest of our lives and even beyond that, we're continually working to try to earn that salvation when Jesus Christ already did it for us. Well, you probably already can figure some of these things out, but let's talk for a couple minutes about problems with penance. I got three of them. There's probably a lot more that we could say that are problems with it. But number one is this. Salvation is by grace through faith. There's nothing that I can do. It's already been done. Not that, I, not that there's nothing I have to do. There is nothing that I can do. It's not, I'm not just, you know, I'm just saying, well, you can do this if you want to, and that kind of helps. No, there's nothing that we can do. Everything has already been done for us. And we see in Romans chapter 3 in verse number 23, again, a very familiar verse, but maybe you're not as familiar with the passage. For all have sinned and come short of the glory of God, being justified freely by his grace through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God has set forth to be a propitiation through faith in his blood, to declare his righteousness for the remission of sins that are past through the forbearance of God, to declare, I say, at this time his righteousness that he might be just, and the justifier of him which believeth in Jesus. Where is boasting then? It is excluded. By what law? Of works? Nay, but by the law of faith. Therefore we conclude that a man is justified by faith without the deeds of the law. It does not get much clearer than that. And if you could just, if you could just take somebody who, who believes in, in Catholicism and point them to that passage, it's about as clear as can be that penance counts for nothing. All the other things that we talk about, they count for nothing because of what Jesus Christ did on the cross. Salvation is received directly from God through faith in Jesus Christ. We could look at Romans chapter 10. We could look at Titus chapter 3. All of those uh, are passages that, that just show us that, that uh, nothing we can do is good enough for us to earn our salvation, but Jesus Christ already did everything that we have to do, and that's enough. The early disciples received eternal life and salvation directly from the Lord Jesus Christ while he was on the earth. He called them. They trusted him. He saved them. Salvation hasn't changed since then. And, and of course, the resurrected Savior calls men through the gospel. Those, those, those who respond with personal faith are, are received by Jesus Christ, obtain their salvation directly from him, not through some man, not through doing penance, not through any of these other things. Salvation is a personal relationship with Jesus Christ. The second reason, uh, or the second problem, I should say, with penance is that, number two, we are to confess our sins to God alone. Turn over to Luke chapter 18. We're going to spend more time on this next week, but like I mentioned a little bit earlier, there are two classes of sins in the Roman Catholic Church system. There's venial sins, which are lesser or maybe not as serious, and mortal sins. Sins that, that automatically send you straight to hell if they're unconfessed. And of course, you know, the Catholic Church has the power to forgive either one of those sins. Uh, but if you commit one of those mortal sins and you don't repent, uh, or I shouldn't say repent, if you don't go do penance before you die, then you automatically go to hell because that sin, that mortal sin, was unconfessed. Of course, there's no distinction like that in the Bible, but even if there was one, Sin is between the individual and God alone. 
a man cannot forgive my sins. Even if there was sins that were mortal sins, that if I committed this sin, I go directly to hell. It doesn't have anything to do with a man between me and God. It has everything to do with me directly to God, right? Luke chapter 18 and verse 13, and the publican standing afar off would not lift up so much as his eyes unto heaven, but smote his breast saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. Uh, it's the same way that we all have to come to God, but we go directly to God. He didn't say, uh, priest, be merciful to me, a sinner, and tell me what I have to do to get to God, right? He's this, this, is, this is a publican. The publicans were not known for being religious people. They were known for being kind of the worst of the worst in society. And here he's smiting his breast and saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. He goes directly to God. And, of course, we see many, many passages all throughout the Bible that, that not only are examples but are direct, uh, direct verses that tell us that we go directly to God. And if you look in the Old Testament, of course, the priest stood between God and man. But in the New Testament... We're all priests. We all have that direct access to God. I don't need some man to go to God for me. I don't need to go to man so I can get to, to God. I don't need some man to tell me my sin and then, and then get some message from God about what I have to do uh, to make God happy. But in the Roman Catholic Church world, the priest constantly comes between the sinner and God. And that's a problem because we don't see that anywhere in the Bible. Uh, there's one mediator between God and man, the man Christ Jesus. It's not Father Flanagan, right? I don't need to go to God through, through anybody else. The truth is, the Roman Catholic system of, of, of the confessional has, has really been widely abused throughout the centuries. And again, a lot of it comes down to money, but church knowledge of secrets that's been used for power, right? It's, it's not as much today as it has been in the past, uh, but the... Uh, the religious system of Catholicism and the political system of Catholicism were very closely tied for many, many years, for centuries. That's one of the reasons why you saw from, from 500 A.D. to 1500 is the, the Dark Ages, the Middle Ages. The, the Roman Catholic Church had a stranglehold not only on the people but on governments. And, of course, uh, you, you think about a king who wants to get to heaven is going to come to a priest and he's going to confess his sins, and now that priest has a has a secret that he can use as blackmail against that king, and he will use it against him. And it's been, I mean, obviously in their system that's not allowed, but who's to keep them from using it to their advantage? And they have throughout the centuries. Uh, you know, stomach-turning facts of priests demanding uh, detailed description of, of certain actions from adolescence. Uh, of course, allowing criminals and mafia and, and all these other underworld-type type, uh, people to be uh, in good standing, provided they, they confess. You know, oh, go ahead and do your murders, go ahead and do all this stuff. As long as you come back and confess, it's okay, right? And, and, and there's so many other things that go into it too, but that, but that system of the confessional has, has just been widely abused all the way throughout the centuries. Which brings us then to number three. The third, uh, third problem with penance is that no man on earth has the power to forgive sins. Um, well, this, is, this, is, this comes for, from a, a book or a manual, if you will, Instructions for Non-Catholics. The priest does not have to ask God to forgive your sins. The priest himself has the power to do so in Christ's name. Your sins are forgiven by the priest the same as if you knelt before Christ and told them to Christ himself. Talk about blasphemous. You talk about taking power that belongs only to Jesus Christ and putting it in the hands of mere men. But that's exactly what the Catholic Church has done. And in the Roman Catholic system, the priest has to hear the sin in order to absolve it. What if you forgot something? What if you, what if you neglected to tell about something that you knew? What if you sinned 
between the confessional and then died. And of course, the confessional, what it does is it, it ends up leaving sincere Catholics in spiritual uncertainty. And so that drives them to agony and, and to, you know, in, uh, to uh, of course, uncertainty. But then also, when it comes down to insic- uh, insincere Catholics, securing their own forgiveness in spite of their awful heart, right? All I got to do is go confess it. It doesn't matter what I do. I can live my life how I want to. As long as I go to confession, the priest is going to forgive it. I'll pay him some money. I'll go do this. I'll go do that, and it'll all be taken care of, which is exactly the opposite of the way that the Bible speaks about grace, right? What shall I say then? Shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? God forbid. How shall we that are dead to sins live any longer therein, right? We've been saved by the grace of Jesus Christ, and so that should keep us from sinning. Not, it doesn't give us a license to sin, but that's essentially what the confessional does for the Catholic. Well, I've been baptized. My sins are washed away. Uh, I'm on my way to heaven, according to the Catholic Church. I'll just go do whatever I want to do, live my life however I want to live, and as long as I go to confessionals once a week or once a month, then I'm good. Right? It, it's, the system is completely backward. Now, bear in mind that the Roman Catholic Church says that the priest has power because of his position. And, and power enough that hey, you don't even need Jesus Christ. You just go to a priest. You don't, need, you don't need Jesus. But it literally has nothing to do with how he lives his life. I mean, you think about, you know, child-abusing priests can still absolve my sins. What sense does that make in, in anybody's system, right? Uh, even priests guilty of unconfessed mortal sins of their own can still absolve sins. It's, it's because of their position that they have the right to do that. Doesn't matter how they live their lives, doesn't matter what they do, they can still absolve sins. How, how do you think that they have a right to absolve sins when they're living in deep sin themselves, right? That's the, that's the beauty of going through Jesus Christ. He's sinless. He's not going to, you know, he's not, he's not doing the same things that we're doing that we're asking for forgiveness from, right? In fact, turn over to, to, uh, to Acts chapter 5. The force of Jesus' life was holiness. Only, only a perfectly holy God can forgive an unholy man, right? No unholy man can forgive another unholy man, only a perfectly holy God. Daniel chapter 9, verse 9, to the Lord our God belong mercies and forgiveness, though we have rebelled against him. Acts chapter 5 and verse number 31, him hath God exalted with his right hand to be a prince and a savior for to give repentance to Israel and forgiveness of sins. Acts chapter 8, a couple pages over. Acts chapter 8, verse number 22, Repent, therefore, of this thy wickedness, and pray God, if perhaps the thought of thine heart may be forgiven thee. And there's so many other verses that talk about this, but only God can forgive sins. No, no man, because he's not sinless. And if you're not sinless, then you don't have the right, you don't have the power, you don't have the ability to forgive sins. Remember the story of Jesus with the palsied man? And uh, his friends brought him to Jesus. They tore the roof off, and they, and they dropped it down there. What did Jesus say to that palsied man? He said, son... Thy sins be forgiven thee, right? And I know I, I used Father Flanagan. I mean, that's a, he's, a, he's a well-known priest uh, years past, but he says, I absolve thee, go in peace, right? I'll take Jesus, thank you very much. Uh, if Jesus says thy sins are forgiven thee, that's a whole lot more trustworthy than what a, what a priest could tell me because the priest is not sinless. In many cases, very far from it. Jesus Christ is, and, and his, the, whole, the, the point of his whole life and the force of his whole life was holiness, so that's penance. Let me give you number six then. The six, and we'll go very quickly on these. The sixth sacrament is marriage. Marriage is considered a sacrament by the Roman Catholic Church. 
and obviously we perform marriages here. We don't consider it to be a sacrament, and we'll talk about why in just a minute. But, but this comes from the Art of Teaching Christian Doctrine. Christ raised marriage to the wonderful dignity of a sacrament of the new law in which the bride and groom are truly consecrated for their sac sacred duty of founding and directing a new e ecclesiola, a human family which shall at the same time belong to the family of God. Now, where they get that from, I have no idea. Because the Bible doesn't say that Jesus lifted marriage to a sacrament, right? They're putting, they're, they're putting words in Jesus' mouth, but they continue. Through this sacrament, the kingdom of God on earth is given the greater part of its new members. Heaven is filled with saints, and the parents themselves are strengthened with ever new graces against all the difficulties of life. So according to the Roman Catholic Church, the sacrament of marriage is a lasting commitment of a man and a woman to a lifelong partnership established for the good of each other and the procreation of their children. That's, that's directly from, uh, from their family counseling service um, that you, you can go find it online. Um, but, uh, it, and, and again, I, w I, wouldn't, I wouldn't say that there's anything wrong with that, right? It is a lifelong commitment. And that's, you know, um, two things that the Catholic Church gets right is marriage and the sanctity of human life, Right? And so where they are right on those, I'm not saying that we're going to stand with them, but we're certainly not going to argue against them saying that marriage is between a man and a woman for life. They're right on that. They are wrong on a couple other aspects that we'll look at. But they say this, this, this comes from uh, the, the website that I was looking at was called accord.com, I believe. But on the, the heading there says Catholic, Catholic Marriage Care Service. This is what they say on the website. The church teaches that since God created man out of love and calls on him to love, it is proper that the union of man and woman should be a sacrament. The love of man and woman mirrors the love of God, and their children are part of God's creation. Now, I'm not saying that, that it shouldn't be love and all of that kind of stuff. I mean, obviously, that's what makes up marriage. But marriage, nowhere in the Bible is, is listed or called or even given uh, the same um, priority as a sacrament, right? Uh, marriage is different to most of the sacraments that are conferred by a priest or a bishop or whatever else. The man and the woman actually confer the sacrament of marriage on each other when they express their consent to marry before God and, of course, the church. And they use some of the same verses that we use for marriage when they, you know, when they say that through the sacraments of matrimony, the, the church teaches that Jesus gives strength and grace to live the real meaning of marriage and all that stuff. You know, a threefold cord is not quickly broken and all those other things. You've got to bring Jesus into the marriage. And, 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 and it's a lot of the same verses that we would use for the strength of marriage. We don't lift it to the, to the level of a sacrament, but the way they believe in the permanence of marriage and the idea of bringing Jesus into the marriage and their strength of family ties, it's all well and good. Where they get off base is, is in the fundamental understanding of the binding of marriage and in the marriage ceremony itself. When a priest performs a marriage, and of course it must be done in a Catholic church, but uh, the exchange of a consent between a man and a woman is essentially part of the marriage ceremony. The priest will ask them three questions when they're getting ready to be married or, or when they're standing at the altar. He says this, have you come here freely and without reservation to give yourselves to each other in marriage? They answer, they will. Will you honor each other as man and wife for the rest of your lives? I will. Will you accept children lovingly from God and bring them up according to the law of Christ and his church? So now I have a question for you. Do you notice the error in that last question? Right? It's not in the, in the nurture and admonition of the Lord, which is what the Bible says, right? It's, are you going to follow all the laws of the church? Are you going to bring them up in the church? 
And of course, I, I mean, I believe it's important that you have your children in church and everything else, but uh, obviously that means a totally different thing. And, and if, you, if you go back and look at the, at the statement we just read a little bit earlier about, about what marriage is all about is, oh, you have a Catholic marriage, now there's children that are being put into heaven that are becoming saints and everything because, because now Catholic parents are going to have their children baptized when they're born and, and they automatically get their sins washed away and all of that stuff. And so it's, it's a, as, as good as it sounds to talk about marriage in the way that the Catholic Church talks about marriage, it all revolves around the Catholic Church and all revolves around making sure that you're committed to not just to each other, but to the church. And of course, the, the presence of the priest and the other witnesses that are there at the ceremony testifies to the fact that marriage is part of the church, which recognizes a lifelong and an exclusive commitment of the bride and groom to each other. Now, I think this is pretty interesting too. To the Roman Catholic Church, marriage is a vocation, uh, and it requires the married couple to accept certain obligations toward each other, toward the children, toward the community, uh, the bride and the groom say, I do. And this is, this is the way that they look at it. Or I'm kind of summarizing some of the things that I, that I took off of their, uh, their website. I, don't, I, I didn't want to take the time to quote the entire thing. But what they say, and the idea behind this is that when, when a bride and groom says, I do, at the wedding ceremony and in their wedding vows, but the presence of the church community there uh, supports the couple throughout their entire life. And so when the couple is saying, I do, then essentially everybody that's there as a witness is, a, is agreeing to, we do. You're in this together. We're all in this together. We're going we're gonna to support ourselves through the, the community of the church. And so the, the, it's the popular notion that a wedding is primarily the business of the bride and the groom is not true when it comes to this idea of, the wedding being a sacrament, the marriage being a sacrament. Here's what, here's what they say. Pope John Paul II said this, the church, witness of the marriage, has a stake in the sacrament of marriage. It makes a difference to the community of believers and to society that marriages are freely entered. The future of humanity passes by way of the family. And so, yes, do we agree with marriage? Absolutely. Do we agree that marriage is between a man and woman and it's a commitment for life? Absolutely. Right? We, we agree with all those things, and we use a lot of the same verses that they use to bring Jesus into the marriage and everything else. But marriage is not a sacrament in the sense that, um, that the bride and the groom are not, just, are not just making a vow to each other, but to each other and to the church at the same time. And that's, that's why they raise it to the level of sacrament, because it is something that you are doing, not just between the two of you, but between the two of you and all of us and the church community as a whole. Which brings us then to the last sacrament, and that is the anointing of the sick. It used to be called extreme unction. They changed it to anointing of the sick, but this is the sacrament for those who, quote, begin to be in danger by reason of illness or old age. And what happens is then the priest will go and anoint that person with oil. He hears his confession. He, he uh, pronounces blessings and so on. That sick person can also take the Eucharist. And essentially, this is kind of like a pre-last rites. Somebody who's looking like they're about to die, um, they're not nece- it's, it's the anointing of the sick. It's not necessarily the healing of the sick, uh, which there's a difference. You know, a lot of times uh, people will do uh, anointing for healing and stuff. This is just the anointing of the sick. Hey, you look like you're about to die. You're on the, you know, you're circling the drain. Let's get this thing taken care of for you. And, and you, you can take the Eucharist. You can do all these other things. But it says this, the, the art of teaching Christian doctrine the sacrament, when it is received with sorrow for the sins of our whole lives, 
acceptance of our sufferings and death in union with Christ's sacrifice, an ardent desire for Christ should complete the process of necessary purification. But if a man sharing Christ's life is still not perfectly purified at the moment of death, God will still cleanse him in another way, for nothing defiled can enter heaven. This is the function of purgatory, to complete the process of purification of transformation into Christ. So uh, we're going to talk about purgatory next week as another one of the false doctrines of the Catholic Church and spend a little bit of time on that. But the Catholic Church actually uses James chapter 5, verse 14 through 16, as biblical support for its practice of anointing the sick. But like we've seen, uh, the sick is to call the elders of the church, not a priest, right? And of course, the confession of sins is to one another, not to a priest. And of course, the Eucharist is not even mentioned at all in that passage. Confess your faults. This is James chapter 5, verse 16, right? Confess your faults one to another and pray one for another that ye may be healed. The effectual fervent prayer of a righteous man availeth much. Again, that context of that passage has nothing to do with confessing your sins to a priest. It doesn't even have anything to do with confessing your sins to a pastor, right? We've talked about that. We're, we're gonna, we'll skip that for today. But that's, that's the verse that the Catholic Church uses to do this anointing of the sick. And, and they call that their seventh sacrament. So in conclusion, let me say this. The Roman Catholic Church has no biblical authority for adding to the ordinances that Jesus Christ gave the church, right? He gave us baptism. He gave us the Lord's Supper. All the other seven, that, all the other five that they add to that to make up seven, nowhere in the New Testament do we find or do we read or anything else that, that the church is to practice confirmation, that the church is to practice penance, Nowhere in the New Testament do we find that marriage or anointing the sick are sacraments uh, that have the power to bestow saving grace on individuals, which is exactly what the sacraments are there for. These things are bestowing salvation on us. And if you don't partake, not, not everybody has to partake in every single one. Obviously, you have the holy orders. You have the priesthood. And, and just because you're not a priest doesn't mean you cannot make it to heaven. So not every person uh, has every one of these sacraments. But... Uh, it's important that you partake in each of these sacraments that you can and should partake in. But that was not the practice that we find described in the early church. We don't find that described anywhere in the Bible. Not only are there no verses that directly say this, there's not even any examples of any of these things happening in the New Testament. So where do they get these things from? It's man-made. It's, it's, it's pulled out of a hat somewhere. I, I don't know where they came up with them from, but sure, sure didn't get it from the Bible. And again, you know, we have this, we see this, this, this frightful tendency of the Roman Catholic Church to change, to add to, to pervert the Word of God, to do whatever they have to do to make it more beneficial for them, to make it so that not only are, are people tied to the church for life and beyond, but they're giving money to the church for life and beyond. And that's one of the reasons why the Catholic Church is so wealthy and has been for so long. But in the New Testament, there's no, no special rights that priests have. There's no special, um, you know, priests that are even set apart for performing the sacraments. The only priesthood that we have described in the New Testament are the, the, the priesthood of Melchizedek and the priesthood of the believers. That's it. We see no other priest that has to go to God on our behalf or anybody else's behalf for that matter. So we'll, we'll, we'll stop there for tonight. I'm going to get into the idea of purgatory next week. I know that you've probably heard about that many times. And by the way, is one of the reasons why we, why we reject the Apocrypha. Uh, the Catholic Bible has the Old Testament, the New Testament, and the Apocrypha in the middle of both of those. And the Apocrypha actually has the ideas of infant baptism, 
has the idea of purgatory, has the idea of, of some of these other things that the Catholic Church has come up with as um, doctrines or even sacraments for that matter. Um, but that's one of the reasons why we, why we, why we reject the Apocrypha. Um, none, of those, uh, none of those ideas are found anywhere else in the Scripture, and not just that they're not found, they actually oppose the other things that we find in Scripture. So we're going to talk about purgatory from, the, from, the, uh, from a biblical perspective, not from the Catholic. We'll look at what they believe about it, but we're going to look at it from a, a biblical perspective next week as well. Let's pray, and we'll be dismissed. Father, we love you. Again, we thank you so much for how good you are to us. I thank you for an opportunity we have to open up your word. And God, we do pray that you would give us opportunities to use these things that we're learning to help lead somebody to Jesus Christ. Boy, there's so many uh, Catholics, not just in this area, but all the way throughout this country and throughout the world. And, and uh, the more we understand, the more we know about this, the more we know our Bibles and why these ideas are false and why they're wrong. We don't hate the Catholics. We hate the ideas that are being pr promoted by the Catholic Church that go contrary to the Word of God. And I pray that you'd help us to use these things to be able to lead others to Christ. And God, I pray for those that are sick and, and out tonight, especially the ones that, that have COVID. I pray that you help them to get well soon and uh, that we'd be able to be back here together on Sunday. Thank you for all that you do for us in Jesus' name. Amen.